Make sure to give my dad a five-star review. Get, make sure to like and subscribe to his YouTube. And thank you for listening and enjoy the show. show. <laughs> So I think when we see Christianity in the founding or we see Protestantism in the founding, we see it with this kind of assumption that um, institutional religion will do that. And over time, after when there's, when there's no established church, other other things have to come in and sort of fill that role, some of which is just rhetoric, right? You just have to be religious and that will make you a good citizen. And there's no, no guaranteeing that that will happen. It's just kind of language. Um, and then other kinds of, you know, voluntary associations and things like that come in too. Welcome back, everybody, to Faithful Politics. I am your political host, Will Wright, and I'm joined by your faithful host, Pastor Josh Bertram. How's it going, Josh? Doing well, Will. How are you? Um, excellent. And we are joined this week with Kate Cart. Is it Carte? Carte? Carte. Carte, <laughs> uh, uh, who is an associate professor of history at Southern Methodist University. She specializes in early American and Atlantic history. Um, she's the author of a couple of books, uh, Religion and the American Revolution and Imperial History and Religion and Prophet Moravians in Early America. So welcome to the show, Kate. Thank you. It's really a pleasure to be here. Yeah. And, and so I was I was just explaining um, before we started recording how I came across your interview on History As It Happens, which is another fantastic um, podcast that if people aren't subscribed, they should subscribe to it. Um and and just your explanation about um, kind of like early, I don't know, the, the, the importing of Christianity to this country and sort of like the history and, um, of, of the whole, like, I don't know, like the, 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 the combination of, of American history and religion was just really, really fascinating. And I know that that's sort of an area of specialty for you. So, so I, I, I guess like maybe my, my first question to you is like, like, how do you, how do you, how does one even get into this field of work? I mean, I, I can't imagine as, as a young person, you're thinking, you know what I really want to do with my life? <laughs> it's to do this. <laughs> Would it disappoint you if in fact, of religion. <laughs> that, that was in fact what it was. Really? Oh, um, I, all right. I, yeah, I decided I wanted to do history, um, I think, in junior high or high school. Um, I think there are a lot of kids out there who just love reading history. And there are certain topics that really, you know, the tutors always pull people and World War II always pulls people. And, you know, I was one of those kids. But I got into early American religion because I really love the 18th century. That's kind of I, I tell my students, you know, you fall in love with a time period. You hit a time period where you feel like not necessarily that you want to live there. I like antibiotics, but where you really <laughs> like the, you know, the the writing and the issues. And it's a really important period when a lot of the things that we care about were sort of established. And it's also and, and religion is um, I think of religion as the place where people park what's most important to them. So whatever is kind of central to your life, whatever you feel like you don't want questioned or you want to make super important, people will put that within the category of religion. So it was a way to study what was most important to them. Yeah. That, 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 are, are you, did you grow up in the church or anything? Um, I grew up actually, um, I grew up in a, in a very devout Quaker family, but I'm not within the tradition any longer. Okay. I gotcha. Yeah. So, so I guess just to, to kick us off, um, I, 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 I want to touch on something that we've we've touched on a lot on this show. I mean, um, like ad nauseum about Christian nationalism. 
Um, and, and I, and I'd like to kind of get your explanation, um, um, on whether or not, you know, this idea that this country was founded as a Christian nation has any connection to what we know today as like Christian nationalism. So there's a lot within that question that we need to sort of pull apart into stages. Mm -hmm. So there's the question of um, how the United States was founded. And even within that, we need to kind of pull things apart a little bit and say, are we talking about the break from Britain? Are we talking about the establishment of the Constitution? Or, you know, So what exactly do we mean there? Um, and then there's the idea of the United States as a nation, by which people usually mean the country founded by the Constitution in 1787, written in 1787. Was that foundation in some way intended by the people who framed it to be specifically Protestant Christian. And, you know, and then there's the question of how that idea has evolved over time. And of course, there's always a really big question whenever people use the word Christian, right? Um, I've actually been working these days with a book that was written in um, 1635 um, called The Christianography. And it's an investigation of all the world's Christians who are not under the tyrannical over, you know, the, the, the <laughs> tyrannical oppression of the Pope. So, and this guy is making the argument, he's an English guy, he's making the argument that, you know, African Christians and Eastern Orthodox Christians and Christians in um, South Asia are all good Christians and Roman Catholics are outside of the fold. They're not Christian, right? So even, you know, going way back then, there's a lot of politics in what we mean by Christian. So in the early period in the 18th century, um, insofar as people thought about having a religious inspiration for the country, they were probably thinking Protestant, right? They weren't thinking Christian. They were thinking Protestant. So if we slip the word Christian in there, what are we doing? That's a little sleight of hand, right? When did Catholics get in the club? Um, and, you know, and the answer is going to be, you know, in stages much later, right? Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So it's, it's a really complicated question. Mm. And yeah, that sounds – oh, go ahead, Will. Uh, it sounds super complicated, and I know that history is always more complicated than we like to think it is, and we always want to simplify it, you know, because it's just easier for us to think of it as simple. And I do hear the idea of a Christian founding a lot. And um, so what would you say the influence of Christianity, specifically Protestant Christianity, how would you say, like, how, how did it influence the founding, like it, like it seems clear that the, you know, Constitution wasn't a Christian document. Um, it doesn't even mention God in it, I don't think. So it wasn't like a Christian document at all, or even a, you know, theistic document. So, but what do you think? How do you think it uh, affected the founding in in Christianity? How, what what influence did it have? Well, so most of the people who were involved in framing the Constitution or in the break from Britain came from a background of a Protestant empire. So the British Empire was explicitly a Protestant empire. And when they went to found the United States, which happens, of course, in several stages, most of them associated organized religion with social stability. So the the sense that the state would be um, stabilized by people who shared a religious background was something that they'd all been raised with. 
But then when it comes to to actually do it, they kind of they realize that in in the United States, religion is really divisive. And the, the, you know, different parts of the, of the United States, of the early United States have very different traditions. They're actively disagreeing with each other on a lot of things. They don't want any kind of stabilizing church. And in some ways they associated, you know, the British establishment with kind of corruption, right? With, you know, these fat bishops who would, you know, ride around London and never go to their bishoprics and all that, this kind of stereotype. That wasn't necessarily true, but that was the stereotype. And so they wanted to kind of, many of them, wanted to move away from the idea of a single state church, but that left a hole of how are you going to accomplish the goals of state stability without an institution to do it? So I think when we see Christianity in the founding or we see Protestantism in the founding, we see it with this kind of assumption that um, institutional religion will do that. And over time, after when there's, when there's no established church, other other things have to come in and sort of fill that role, some of which is just rhetoric, right? You just have to be religious and that will make you a good citizen. And there's no no guaranteeing that that will happen. It's just kind of language. Um, and then other kinds of, you know, voluntary associations and things like that come in too. Yeah, j- j- just to de- define some terms here, because uh, be- because we, we do have sort of a diverse audience. I mean, we got believers, non-believers, what have you. Um, like, so when we say Protestant, like what, what do we... What, what do we mean by Protestant? You know, that is such a great question. I'm so glad you asked that. I was just talking to someone the other day about how <laughs> Protestant is one of these words that, like, in certain periods of our history, people are like, like, there are riots in favor of Protestantism during the American Revolution in Britain. There's the Protestant Association. They put that word everywhere. In the 20th century, there are periods when Americans, um, I think, what is it, churches united for the... Oh, one of the big um, secular organizations has its earlier name is actually organization of Protestants, right? The word, mm. but now the word doesn't mean anything to us right now, right? It ebbs and flows really profoundly. So classically, Protestant means Western European um, people from the rest, Western European Christian tradition who reject the authority of the Pope, right? So there are lots of Christians in the world, Eastern Orthodox Christians and and, you know, African Christians, Christians all over the world who are not a part of the Protestant tradition. Um, so Martin Luther and then um, the, you know, the divorce, Henry VIII's divorce with Catherine of Aragon creates the Church of England. There's the Presbyterian Church. There's the Calvinist movement. There's all the, those are all sort of theological terms. Most of the words that we use for denominations today are actually um, originate from those times. And, um, you know, so Episcopalians, Anglicans, Presbyterians, Baptists, Methodists, who are a tiny bit later, but kind of the same thing. Um, all of these different groups are Protestant groups. Okay. That, that, that makes sense. So, so is it, is it, if someone's going to say, okay, this country was founded as a Christian nation, that's wrong because it was founded as a Protestant nation. But, but like, I would, I would, assume that you would probably disagree with with sort of that statement right and and if so like like why why is that statement wrong well i i think the people who founded the country who are you know elite white men right those people were invested in social stability that they saw as having in the past come from protestantism but they were very concerned um that uh 
they did not think an established church would be effective in the United States. Um, they eliminated tests for public office. That was a little bit controversial. There were people who said um, in the ratification process, people who said, what if a Catholic is elected president? Clearly, that will be the downfall of the United States. Mm. And, but, the, but the Constitution d- explicitly eliminates tests on for religious tests for public office, right? Um, so they had this background, but they chose not to use it. Um, they chose to leave religion out and they kind of developed the idea that religion would be something private. Um, that, uh, you know, the, the phrase that Thomas Jefferson uses and, and Madison uses this kind of language too is, is that religion is something between a person and their God. Of course, he uses gendered language, but that it's a, it's a private spiritual thing, right? It's a, it's a thing of thoughts or a thing of feeling, not a thing of institutions. So when you transition religion into being something that's just kind of private, you can protect it like we do in the First Amendment, um, but without saying that that the citizenry must be Protestant or Christian or anything else or even religious, right, or saying that the leaders of the government need to be religious. So I wouldn't say that the institutions of government are founded um, as a Christ, as for a Christian or a Protestant nation, but I would say that the people who did that founding were nervous about the institutional transition they were doing. So, so real, real, real quick, you, you mentioned something about, which I never thought of or or knew about, you know, they were, they were kind of afraid that a Catholic would, you know, be elected to office or something. And so I, I'm, I'm curious, like, was that, was the, the, you know, the waving of the religious test, like written specifically kind of with Catholics in mind? You know, that's a great question. I think Catholics were the closest religious outsiders that they could imagine. So almost exactly 100 years before the American Revolution, the Glorious Revolution in England ousts a Catholic king, James II, on the grounds that a that a popish prince, that's the word, the phrase they use, a popish prince can't rule a Protestant people. And the entire British apparatus, up, actually up until, um, I think it was actually when Kate, uh, Princess Kate was pregnant with George, they changed the laws in England, so hundreds of years later, to say that you did not have to be Protestant to be the sovereign of England. So for all that time, you had to be Protestant. So removing that test on office, on, on the office, is in some ways distancing themselves from the Protestant empire. And it's also acknowledging that being, a, this is an enlightenment idea, right? Being a good citizen does not require you to pass a theological test. And then keep in mind, the French really paid a big part in winning the war, right? So to to win the war with French help and then say the French, that a French person couldn't be, you know, a Catholic couldn't be a part of our government is kind of a slap in the face of the French. So that's that's a big part of the story too. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hey there, Josh Bertram here, faithful host of the Faithful Politics Podcast. I want to let you know about a compelling new spinoff the Faith Roundtable, where I'll be interviewing top faith leaders, theologians, and scholars to unpack the pressing issues that are shaping the church in America today. We'll dive into topics like faith and public life, social justice, and how we can engage our communities more effectively. Make sure you don't miss any of our enlightening conversations by subscribing to it on our YouTube channel. Join me at the Faith Roundtable, where deep discussion meets thoughtful insight.
Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And it's so uh, fascinating thinking about the uh, beginning of our nation and how religion played a, a part, um, even in its uh, intentional, you know, um, absence from the uh, from the Constitution, except in the protection of religion. Um, my, you know, when we have the Constitution, I've heard I've heard it said that it was like um, I've heard it called rather um, like the secular Bible or something like um, where it's like almost like a secular like um, inspired writing. You know, we all have our sacred scriptures. And I've heard it said like that in terms of like, um, you know, we have you have all these religions and then you have secularism, which is supposed to be this, you know, this intentional movement away from religion. But it almost feels like in some ways it's become religious in and of itself with, you know, with um, uh what would you call it? Like um, foundational assumptions mm-hmm. um, with uh, with, you know, uh, standards and uh, standards of morality and all sorts of stuff that you would hear even touted today. Like, well, we're a secular nation. What and, and to the extent you can't answer it, how has secularism changed moving from this document that they intentionally write very intentionally um, made to be move, removing the religious tests, not mentioning God in the Constitution, things like that. How did how do you think secularism has changed from then to now? Is it the same thing? Is it the same idea, or like is it just completely different beast? You no, know, that's a really in- interesting question. Um, one part of the answer is that we've been fighting about this question, fighting about the way religion should or shouldn't shape our public institutions, shape our education, shape our public squares. We've been fighting about that since the founding. And we've been fighting about whose religion qualifies as religion since the founding. And those fights are really, really, really important. So, you know, there are times when, you know, I can't buy alcohol in Texas before noon on Sunday. Um, you know, I, whatever. Um, I don't think that's, I don't drink a lot before noon on Sunday, so it's not a problem, but I do grocery <laughs> shop. <before laughs> Um, but, you know, so there are a lot of ways that, you know, there was a moment when that was considered really important for public morality. Certainly our abortion debates are all about where whose religion gets to to enter the public sphere in which way. Right. So those fights are really important. And those fights also shape secularism. Right. Because I think what we call secularism is often this sort of place where we've said there is no religion, right? It isn't really anything else. It's just where we've said there is no religion. So it's kind of a negative definition, right? Um, we've, um, we've really, uh, yeah, we've just argued about it, um, a lot. And, you know, there is a, there are a lot of values when we say, you know, what are secular values? You know, one thing that is a, a good place to look, um, I don't know if your viewers um, or your uh, listeners might be familiar with uh, the Church of the Flying Spaghetti Monster. I'm ordained. Um, I'm ordained with them. Yeah. <laughs> so this is, uh, this is when, I teach, when I teach religion in American history, I have students start with their website because there are very explicit value statements in that website about tolerance, right, and about um, respect for others, about um, a civil sphere that will not include claims to ultimate truth, right? All of those things are value statements of secularism. Um, and so, like, that's a good place to think of 
secularism as a kind of religion, right? It's a set of rules that we play by in the public sphere. Um, and then there are people who don't want to play by those rules, who think that those rules deny them access to something or, or violate some sort of fundamental truth for them. Um, yeah. Yeah. I guess like as a follow up, mm -hmm. just real quick, well, like, I guess like some context, because this has bothered me for some time, if I'm totally honest, like, you know, it's almost like pegged, well, you're a Christian and you have your faith and you, and that needs to stay out of the public square. But my values and the thing I'm bringing, they're not, they're not religious, they're secular. But then clearly it seems like there are moral underpinnings and assumptions and things happening. It's almost like someone who is an atheist could say, well, I'm secular, I'm a humanist or whatever, but like not fit, like almost like their views are more legitimate because they're not quote unquote influenced by religion. And yet they still have foundational assumptions about life. They still have foundational assumptions about morality what shapes that morality? Where do they get that from? I mean, these kind of ultimate questions, does secularism even answer? And I don't want to just like bring everything, hijack this all to like secularism. And I, I, I'm, I'm not trying to do that, but just highlighting the role of like religion has played such a huge part in our lives and in our country and shaping it. And I don't know. Sometimes it feels like there's almost this um, this false dichotomy. That's not the right word, dichotomy. But there's like this. Uh, it's it's this touting that this neutral secularism, and we're good. But all you other religious freaks out there, you got to keep your religion in your church. But for us. Uh, we don't have religion, although our morals and everything we think about, like those kind of um, underpinning assumptions drive like all we do, all the laws we make, you know, how, what cons is considered tolerance or not. I don't know if you have any. I, that wasn't a really a question necessarily, but I don't know if that um, inspired any thoughts. Like, what, what do you think about that idea in general? Are you asking me or are you asking Will? Oh, <laughs> you. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, I don't need to interview I think, Will. I, I, I think what's really time. interesting there is to think about what we call religious claims, right? Who gets to who gets to claim what by virtue of religion? And then also you can look at the range of American religious actors and see who makes political claims on the basis of their religion and who makes political claims on the basis of public good or or something like that. So there are lots of religious people, um, uh, particularly liberal religious people, who have, you know, strong basis in their faith, but do not make their arguments based on that, right? So they're doing, you know, what we what we talk about in the academy is being, doing bracketing, right? Where you take your personal beliefs and you set them aside. And they're, they're making that argument based on, um, on other aims, right? Now, a person, a person who holds different views could also do that, Right. But um, in our politicized environments, it has become a very valuable political tool to say, I don't want to bracket my faith. Right. And you see that a bit in the reaction to the abortion, to the um, the ruling against abortion. Right. Um, American Jewish groups have been very prominent in saying that it is a Jewish teaching and belief that, you know, goes back millennia that life begins at birth. Right. So, okay, 
you know, it's so if if that then should they be making that religious freedom argument, you know, and because the anti-abortion activists have tended to monopolize the space of it's my religion that says that this is what's happening. Right. So when do we use those arguments? And there's you know, there's some fascinating historical work on um, on when different traditions, um, for instance, indigenous peoples worked to shape their arguments for cultural freedom to say their religions were illegitimate or were legitimate because in the 19th century, the U S government did not consider indigenous traditions, religion, right? They were, they were ruled outside of the category. Um, even today, uh, there are plenty of traditions that, um, have practices that are not, you know, for instance, if you if your tradition believes in in animal sacrifice, like Santeria, something like that, you have to you have to, for public health reasons, abide by a set of rules that very much restrict your religious freedom. Right. Um, and and that's the society has said you don't get to do animal sacrifices in, you know, certain kinds of spaces. Um, and, you know, so people have different capacities to leverage those arguments and different power to do it. You know that that's interesting, and, and you, you brought up indigenous people, and I and I'm I was I was thinking about this kind of as we went into this interview, kind of about like the the early settlers, you know, that made their way onto this um, this continent, and they um, you know they met up with indigenous people, um, and they had their own you know set of beliefs and faiths and traditions and what have you. And I, and I'm curious if, if you, if you have any thoughts about like, like what, what did that clash of faiths look like and what impact did it have, you know, on, you know, on the people that were here? I mean, like, like, were, was there, uh, were there like conversion camps, you know, <laughs> like, or, or so, something like that? Cause I mean, I, 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 like, we all know that it wasn't, you know, it didn't necessarily end well for the indigenous people, but, but just, you know, focusing just purely on sort of the faith aspect, like how, how did, how did, how did that interaction, you know, um, sort of develop? You know, it is so complicated. Um, I think the part of the story of that that interests me the most is that that's actually the time when we see religion born <laughs> is in that moment of contact. And what I mean by that is before contact with indigenous peoples in North America and the development of, of slavery, Europeans coming from a Christian tradition um, thought of religion and secular very much within a Christian context. And when they begin encountering particularly native peoples, they have to confront a really significant theological question, right? So either if, if the Christian God is true and as powerful as, as they believed he was, then either he did not share Christianity with them, in which case he doomed all of these people to hell without any justice at all, or um, something, some other story explains their presence, their rejection of, um, of, of Christianity if they had been exposed to it. Right? So there's all the theological questions that, that get raised. And then they also initially say these people have no, Columbus says these people have no religion, right? And then over time, they said, okay, they have this stuff, and we're going to call that their religion. 
And that's the moment when we see them staking out the territory of what gets parked in that category of religion, right? Ultimate questions. Why are ultimate questions religion and not philosophy, right? These are all just semantic terms, right? So as they, um, as colonizers encountered indigenous people, they started carving out territory and saying, okay, this is indigenous religion. And when they did that, they got religion, right? That's when they went from being um, Christians, right, who knew there was there were Muslims and Jews, but they were within this category of Christian, to being in a world where there where sort of all peoples have religion, right? Every culture is supposed to have its indigenous religion, and then they kind of compete and compare and contrast, and and you know, from we get the idea of world religions, right? So and then you know as they're figuring this out, they're doing lots of missioning, and and of course the indigenous people quite logically look at the soldiers and the missionaries next to each other and say, I don't see a difference. <laughs> right. And, um, and there's a lot of, there's a lot of conflict that, that goes on there, but some missionaries are, are very successful. Um, the disruptions of colonization are profound and um, the missionizers sometimes appear to have real spiritual power that's drawing um, to indigenous people. And there's a lot of sort of very genuine indigenous Christianity that develops. What about like, um, so like slaves, I mean, you know, so the slaves that came from Africa, um, I'm, I'm assuming they probably had same as the indigenous people, some faith beliefs or, or whatnot. What, 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 what can you tell us about, you know, the faith of, uh, of the slaves that, that were brought here? And then how did that, you know, mix with, um, the early day, you know, Protestant, um, you know, faith traditions, well, so one of the really important things that enslavers did was to say, was to devalue the traditions of the, of, of Africans. So for instance, and I, I, you know, there's a, there's a wonderful scholar by the name of Sylvester Johnson, who's at Virginia Tech now, who's written just an amazing book on this, on the history of African-American Christianity. And a big chunk of the early part there um, talks about how sort of the idea of a fetish, for instance, as something that's sort of a lesser African tradition, whereas real Protestantism doesn't have that kind of materiality to it or whatever. So they do all of this work kind of establishing that Africans have no religion. And they do that so that they can create the argument that enslaving them will um, uh, ultimately benefit them. This is also the time where the story of the curse of Ham is first applied to Africa. Um, before the age of enslavement, the curse of Ham is not considered geographically attached to Africa at all. Um, and so that sort of theological justification for enslavement comes in. Um, in terms of the actual people who were enslaved, a lot of them were Catholic. Um, there's a huge Portuguese Catholic presence in Congo, for instance. And so a lot of them knew Christianity and were, you know, they had African versions of of um, Catholic Christianity. It didn't look exactly like, you know, Anglican Protestantism by any means, but they they knew that those traditions. And also that's the origins of American Islam. Um, there are a, a significant number. If you just think about where in Africa those um, those people were being captured, a lot of them were exposed to or were also um, actually um, uh, practicing Muslims. Enslavers do not write that stuff down. <laughs> so we know that because we know where the people came from. Um, and I think there's some archaeological evidence that you can see in some places in the South that would, would suggest that. But enslavers consistently, for their own sake, write down that these people have no religion until they become Protestant. 
So there's a big gap in our records, right? We, the, you know, we don't, I w- would be amazing if in the 17th century or the early 18th century, we had really robust discussions from some sort of ethnographically alert, like somebody who really cared about African traditions, you know, in the early 18th century, or the mid 18th century, when there's a huge uptick in African arrivals and you get the sort of re-Africanization of the South. If, if someone had been interviewing them and saying, please tell me, and I will write down faithfully. <laughs> What, what your you know spiritual experience of this dislocation was, um, but there are a bazillion reasons why we don't have exactly the records we'd like there. But I will say Sylvester Johnson could give you a much better answer for what that looks like. That's so cool. I uh, I even looked up Sylvester. Totally, Johnson. we should have him on the podcast. Well, I already looked him up, but uh, you know it's as you're talking about. Um, you know, slavery, how certain people, indigenous religion, the religion of um, slavery or not the religion of slavery, but the religion of those African nationals that were taken um, from, uh, you know, from uh, the Ivory Coast and, and brought to America, um, their religion that they had back in their home, uh, their places of origin what so so they're excluding all these religions and um by saying they're not religion which makes me start to think that the definition of religion Absolutely. has changed over time um and like the concept has really shifted over time and it brings me to this place which certainly I'd love to hear you comment on that 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 change and the evolution of the concept of religion in the last couple few hundred years but I one thing that I'm super interested in um, is that, uh, you know, we have we've had a a very tumultuous few few years as a country, obviously, and and race has always been an issue in our country, um, as we've j- as indicated by the conversation we just had and the question we just had. Race has always been an issue, and America has been very imperfect as to dealing with that, and 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 has done. Um, you know, obviously at times terrible things. Uh, but one thing I've always been curious about, like when we're taking down these statues and we're, we're you know, removing all sorts of things um, that remind us of this past or celebrate this past is what, you know, the celebration of it and stuff like that, which I understand why that's offensive completely. Um, but what do you think about the judgment that we make on people in history. Do you know, as we look back on them, like from our perspective today, and we make a judgment, for instance, we need to take this statue down because this man owned a slave or owned slaves. And we should take this statue down because we can't celebrate. Now, again, I'm not arguing, I'm not making any claims about whether that's right or wrong. I don't have a strong opinion on that, to be honest with you. Um, but, there's definitely a judgment made upon that person, upon their character or whatever it was. Um, what do you think about that as 21st century people making judgments about what people said or wrote or thought or felt or their motivations from the past? What cautions, what encouragements do you have as we're you know, processing I think the this biggest stuff? disconnect between academic historians and the public on these questions is that 
for the most part, academic historians see history and the present as of a piece and see, well, I'll just speak for myself here. People are people throughout history. Um, it is, I, I don't, um, the job of the historian is for the most part, not to judge whether someone was good or bad, right? So from a public history perspective, we often want to pull lessons from history, but I don't think by pulling lessons, we should be naming winners and losers, right? It's, it, we should approach it with humility and respect. They were just as smart as we were. There were, you know, people in the past who were funny and people in the past who never got a joke and people in the funny in the past who, you know, loved mustard and people who hated hot peppers. And they're, I mean, they're like us. And, um, so I don't think there are, I think when you put a statue up of someone, right, you're suggesting they're somehow better than other people. Right. And then to be surprised that a hundred years later, you've got a different judgment of them. I mean, I, sure. If, if the statue bothers you now, take it down. Like, the, the guy's dead. He doesn't care. You know, it, it, so I'm very kind of, yeah, I'm kind of laid yeah, back dead. about this. Now, there's another piece of it, which is that, you know, so um, my family has been in this country, both sides of my family have been in this country since the 17th century, which means I'm descended from enslavers. I'm descended, you know, I have, like everybody, I have family stories that were descended from the Cherokee, but that's its own historical mythology, right? Um, I'm descended from people who fought on both sides of the Civil War, you know, it, it's all my fault. Yes, it's all also not my fault, right? Um, I don't feel personally beholden to that past. I am fascinated by that past. I love it. I study it. I am always happy to help people understand how that past came about. Um, but if if there were ever a statue of one of my relatives, which there aren't because they're not that important, <laughs> um, and you needed to take it down, that's fine. If a monument comes down with the name of my Confederate relatives, have at it, right? Um, so that's that's the other piece is that I have a sense of disconnection from the past, which I I don't think a lot of you know a lot of people quite legitimately feel judged if their um, if their ancestors are judged, and you know that's a I, that's a that's a question for a pastor, right? And, you know, what is your relationship to historical guilt? That's a theological question, not a, not a historical one. <laughs> what, what, do you, what do you think, Josh? Would you be upset if somebody took down the statue of, uh, you know, Confederate soldier Bertram? Um, if there was a statue, I don't know. How, I mean, again, I think I think it should be, you know, in a museum or something like that, especially with what it represented or whatever. Again, like I, I'm a little bit more like you, Kate. Like, I don't I don't even, you know, whatever, dude. Like, I have no I had no connection to that person. I don't even know my great grandfather. You know, my dad's side, let alone anyone like from the past. And there were Bertrams that fought um, in the Civil War on the Confederate side. And, you know, because we came from Alabama. So I so totally I I, I just am wondering, like, because we make a lot of judgments on people in the past and which I understand. And I just wanted to hear. I just think it's a it's a yeah. fascinating thing that we. I will do say that. when my when my town and, put um, up a new elementary school, I advocate historians take on that. It. But yeah, but if there's a statue, if you will, I'd, I'd <laughs> like to stay as you should. Um, so so I'm 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 curious about. Um, so you wrote a book um, about the Moravians, um, yes. and I'm 
And I'm curious if maybe you can explain to to us who the heck the Moravians are and why are they important <laughs> kind of in our, our national conversation about religion and American history. They are absolutely central to everything and, and outside of the community, which still exists, very few people have heard of them. Um, so the Moravians are an 18th century group that um, started in Central Europe in the midst of the wave of revivals that ultimately founded, that led to the founding of what many people call evangelicalism. Um, I call it the Awakening Movement. So they're, they are the key actors in the Awakening Movement. They are the most successful missionaries in the 18th century. Um, when John Wesley has his heart strange formed, he's at a Moravian meeting. Um, they, uh, we work closely with George Whitfield, who is another important evangelist. Um, but what's really interesting about them, and they, they were also, they sent missionaries to indigenous peoples, um, uh, they had a communitarian society in, but they founded the Bethlehem part. They founded Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, and the um, Salem part of Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Those are the Moravian towns in, in North America. Um, but uh, what's really interesting about them is that they did not believe in institutions. Really. Um, they wanted to be, um, they wanted people to come to, to, they had a very Christocentric, very Jesus-focused tradition, which, you know, matches where evangelicalism goes. Um, they wanted people to have a born-again experience that would bring them to Jesus, but they did not see that they needed to be Moravian, per se. And so they ended up often in, you know, Lutheran churches or Methodist churches or other other communities. Um, so they don't, they don't have the footprint that, say, the Wesleyan tradition has, um, but they are actually as important as John Wesley, I would say. <laughs> so there's influence is still around. They're just, uh, they're, they're really, their 18th century influence is particularly important. Yeah. So, so you, you, you mentioned they, you know, they were in Salem. Um, and I, I, I have to ask you about, um, sort of an important thing that's kind of like a, a fix to that. So like in the, in our, in our normal, like political lexicon, our conversation, you know, we have certain politicians that use the word, you know, witch hunt. Um, and, and I, I'm curious, like, like, um, like what, 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 can you tell me about like the Salem witch hunts? And I know this is sort of off topic, I know, but I'm, <laughs> uh, but I'm, I'm fascinated by it. I'm curious because I've always thought like, you know, like, like if you, if you were a practicing witch, you know, like today, which there are, I mean, like, you know, there are like pagans and whatnot, like, like, would, would that be an offensive like term? Uh, but, but. You know, when when people talk about witch hunts, like like obviously that that phrase has a much different connotation today, you know, in 2022 than it did, I don't know, back in 1600s or something like that. So so what 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 can you tell us about witch hunts? Well, so I'll, I will say the Moravians are part of the North Carolina Salem, not the Massachusetts Salem. So the Moravians get a pass on witchcraft trials. But um, <laughs> the uh, the in terms of Salem, uh, Massachusetts. Um, so magic and people doing magic is a universal. All cultures have versions of magic. Um, sometimes they get criminalized and sometimes they don't, right? Um, and the witchcraft trials in the early modern era are a particularly um, Protestant, which I mean not in the Catholic tradition, but they're a Protestant reaction um, to 
magic because people started thinking that it was the devil doing magic, right? Which has big theological implications. In Salem, in Massachusetts, in 1692, which is when you have the Salem witchcraft trials, this kind of fear of the devil. There's indigenous war going on. Um, there's you know a lot. There's a lot of cultural strife going on. It's kind of the, that glorious revolution that I mentioned in England meant that their government was unstable. So there's a lot of terror, and they react to this very dramatic event. Um, it scares them, right? So the aftermath of the Salem witch trials is a really quick shift to disavowing um, spectral evidence, disavowing being able to saying, I see a ghost up there, or I see something up there. And that's how I know that you're guilty, right? That's spectral evidence. Very, very difficult to verify. So um, disavowing spectral evidence and saying that religion is rational, right? Um, and that actually becomes a core part of that, I that changing idea of religion over time is that religion has to be rational. If you can't rationally defend your your traditions, whether it's with a biblical authority or some other kind of authority, then it shouldn't be religion, right? And that you can see that in some ways as a reaction against, um, you know, irrational religion that makes people do terrible things like, like um, witchcraft. Even in the American Revolution, people were saying that the people in Salem were completely um, inappropriate, right? So very quickly, within just a very short period of time, you have people saying that it gets that modern meaning of witch hunt as something that's wrong. <laughs> yeah, that, it, that, that's a great question. Well, you know, I've heard that talked about a lot of times um, that, you know, that's one that a, a lot of atheists use to uh, um, talk about how dangerous religion is, but, you know, they forget Stalin and Pol Pot and all those guys, but, you know, whatever. Um, but at when one thing that I'm, uh, that I'm curious about is, um, is colonialism. So we've had colonialism as a, I know it's been a topic for, you know, a few decades now, obviously, um, uh, even longer than that, but like, especially in religion, like how colonialism, when I was in seminary, how colonialism shaped or the, you know, post-colonialism, like how, how, how were we shaped by religion? What kind of things do we need to get rid of? What kind of things do we need to keep? So one of my uh, one of my questions, as you see, when you look at like Christianity today, and and religion today in our country, um, and 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 we have to acknowledge the influence that um, that our past has had on us. And particularly uh, colonialism has had on us. When you see like Christianity today, do you think that there are certain core elements? Like maybe what core elements do you see today that you saw in the 17th century? And what things would you say that are just totally like, now you can think of like totally culturally like, you know, developed and there were, you know, um, I guess what am I, I'm, I'm trying to get it out right, but that there were like, there's certain ways they practice it in 17th century America that we don't do today, right? Culturally, um, informed and created, um, you know, forms of worship and things like that. But would you say what, what is the continuation? What connects us Christianity specifically? What connects Christianity today to the Christianity of the 17th century when they wrote the constitution and all that, and our country was founded. What, what, 
what can we say? Yeah, we share this with them so we can take the lessons from them and say, yeah, we share this basic human experience so we can look at that and say they had wisdom here or this is like this is totally against what we think and uh, we should just get rid of this stuff. I mean, what 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 would you say is the connection there? I don't. Does that question make sense? I, kinda, I might not be getting it out right. I think so. Um, I think. Um, that's a really big question. What strikes me the most when I read different eras of religious writing, and this is Protestant writing, is that the questions that really drive people at any particular moment change a lot. So often what happens is that an issue that's really important in, you know, in, so in 1840 or 1850, the, the question of slavery in the Bible is so important that it is pressing and driving things in a way that 75 years before Protestant thinkers were not talking about it. They didn't think about it. There is no meaningful Protestant, um, high-level Protestant discourse about the nature of slavery until you get to the age of revolutions, right? There's there's scattered places. And people say, oh, isn't that too bad, right? White Protestants. But um, but in the 18th or in the 19th century, it becomes super important. So, and then for the, for like for today, I, you know, I was listening to one of your earlier podcasts um, when you were talking about complementarianism, for instance. That's, that is not something I see discussed in the terms that you all discussed it on that podcast um, in the 18th century. So the problem is if you take those questions in the questions of your day and you look past, look back, you'll just see discontinuities because the pressing issues of any particular day are different. On the other hand, great point. If you open questions up and kind of, you know, so one way to come at it would be the we for Christianity today Um, I think I have a lot of respect for my colleagues at Perkins Divinity School here. As I said, I'm not within the Christian tradition, but, um, the Perkins, my colleagues in Perkins, when I hear them talk about world religions, the, the real theological grappling that people in in 2022 are doing with how to understand global Christianity, um, and what that means in spiritual terms, the grappling the United Methodist Church is doing with with um, trying to keep a global fellowship or not. Right. Based on very deep values. OK, so that's the shape of those questions today. We are not willing. I think most most modern Americans are not willing to say that the Christian we must be limited to white men. Right. It's got to include more in the 18th century. The you know, people who were writing theology. Right. Which means not the. You, not the totality of Christianity by any stretch, but the people who the you know elite white men who were writing theology did not grapple with that question. They just didn't, right? And so, but they did grapple with what we meant, right? They did wonder about who should be within their fellowship and who should not. I mean, that's for me, that's the most interesting question about the American Revolution. It's a war among Protestants. It's Anglicans killing Anglicans, Presbyterians killing Presbyterians, and they're doing it over sovereignty and taxes. So. On what religious level? I mean, I I, I feel like murder's wrong. <laughs> like I said, I came from a pacifist tradition, so I feel like war's usually a pretty bad thing. So I was interested in how that, what that meant, right? So they did grapple with the question of what is our we, but they didn't do it in racial terms. So if we go back and ask, not 
not not the way we do. So if we go back and ask that question, we won't get a straight answer. I think that's the that's the biggest challenge. Um, but you know, yes. But people do, I think, through all of this, you find both people who turn to faith to answer the deep challenges of their life, and you find an equal number of people then and today who say. Psh, I don't, you know, that minister is saying that, but I think he's wrong and I'm going to walk away and I don't care. And there are an equal number of, of non-religious people in the past as there are in the present. That, that, that's really cool. Uh, so, so my, my last question for you, and, and, and I really appreciate you uh, spending time with us. This has been a, been a pretty awesome conversation um, is um, I'm, I, I know that, you know, your field of, study is looking in the past, but, but as a, you know, as a uh, student of history, um, like you live in the present and you, you know, like exist for the future. So, so like, I'm curious if you see, if there are any patterns or trends in America, um, especially in the context of religion in America that you see repeating itself and and if you you know would be so bold you know to make any predictions about where sort of like this natural like ev- evolution of you know our, our common whatever our current discourse um, is in sort of that that space. So this is, I suppose, inevitably a political opinion. Um, the histori- as historians were trained never to use the word unprecedented. Right. I mean, if you, you tell somebody, you tell a historian that something's never happened before and we'll all sit around and say, oh, no, in the, yeah, I got one. Right. <laughs> so we don't like to say that. However, um, I am very surprised by the direction that our discussions about freedom of religion are going um, to a place that I'm not surprised. The thing about allowing coaches to pray on, on the field, you know, that doesn't surprise me because majority religion oppressing minority religion is not new. That's That happens all the time. What surprises me is that we're moving towards a definition of religion in law that is, I'm thinking about the Hobby Lobby case, that is so individual that it's antisocial, right? It's It allows you to hurt other people. And that, for me, feels like a real departure from the values of the constitution. And I don't mean the spiritual transcendent values, of the constitution. I mean, the constitution is supposed to be United States together, right? And if there is a freedom enshrined in the constitution that allows you to violate the rights of another citizen, obviously the constitution allowed people to violate the rights of non-citizens in a bazillion ways, you know, through slavery and things like that. But violate the rights of another citizen, then I'm not quite sure where the boundary around religion stays. And my worry is not that the society will fall apart. My worry is that religious freedom, religious freedoms will eventually dissolve because they'll be um, indefensible. Uh, That's interesting. Yeah. So I was going to say, you know, go ahead. That's interesting because, you know, there's a, there's a group, um, that is led by a bunch of former um, um, appointees from the previous administration. And, and uh, it's, they're called America first legal. 
And one of their mission statements is to abolish the establishment clause. Um, and, and, you know, so kind of as you're talking, like, I, I was just thinking about that. I'm thinking like, like, why would you want to do that? I mean, like, why would you want to turn like the U S into some sort of like theocracy, you know, <laughs> or I mean, maybe we already are a theocracy. I don't know, you know, but very bad. Idea. Well, and you know, the largest so, church in the United States since the 1820s, the largest church in the United States is the Catholic church. Were we to establish a theocracy, the the majoritarian <laughs> option is the Catholic Church, right? We, you know, we say this is a lot of people say this is a Protestant nation. The truth is, the Catholic Church has been the largest institutional presence in the United States since the early 19th century. They don't act like mm -hmm. it, but they are it, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, abolish the establishment clause, and <laughs> I mean, I'm not worried about <laughs> Catholic theocracy, but I mean, on a demographic level, it doesn't make any sense to me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I think that's probably a good place for us to, to leave it. <laughs> so <laughs> so th thank you again, Kate. This has been yes, an amazing so conversation. Um, I'd love to have you back sometime uh, when we have more questions. Um, yeah, anytime. <laughs> so. This has been a lot of fun. And I, like I said, I've really been enjoying listening to your podcast and kind of getting